Nice to be back with you. Uh, I've had a, a good time. A little bit of study, a little bit of lecturing, uh, a little bit of uh, preaching. And uh, I'm just so struck at the kind of freedoms that we have as modern Western Christians, whether in Oxford or Sydney. We have so many freedoms to uh, study and proclaim, to meet like this, to uh, contribute to politics, to appear in the media, to set up schools and charities and so on. About the worst we ever get it in our neck of the woods is uh, that bizarre art installation that's causing a bit of controversy at the moment uh, down in Hobart, where along the waterfront you find all these upside-down red crosses. Now, the red uh, cro- or the upside-down cross is usually associated with the Antichrist and some sort of criticism of Christianity is no doubt uh, intended by this, and some Christians are upset, thinking it's a little bit of persecution, uh, but most uh, Christians, it seems to me, the Tassie Christians, are pretty cool about it. They think it's silly, they brush it off, though, as no big deal. By contrast, the Christians to whom the book of Revelation was written had every reason to think the whole world was against them. Roman authorities were stepping up their repression of the Christian minority. And we know uh, that this would lead to thousands of deaths uh, across Turkey, the region to which Revelation was written. We know that locals would join in the Roman uh, persecution and start to... uh, collaborate with the Romans against the Christians. I've read to you before the amazing letter we have from the governor of Bithynia, just north of where this letter was written just 10 years later, uh, writing to Emperor Trajan uh, about his persecution of Christians. And we read things like, I have asked them in person if they are Christians with a warning of the punishments awaiting them. If they persist, persist, I order them to be led away execution. But now I have begun to deal with this problem, the charges are becoming more widespread. Pliny reports, an anonymous pamphlet has been circulated which contains the names of a number of accused persons. Imagine this, anonymous pamphlets appearing in the streets throughout this region. There's a Christian at number four. That whole family down there, the, the, the leather tanner, they're Christians. This question seems to be worthy of your consideration, Trajan, especially in view of the number of persons endangered through contact with this wretched cult. Among those collaborating with Roman officials, uh, perhaps uh, handing out anonymous pamphlets, were local Jewish communities. We know this from the letter that we studied a few weeks ago to the Church of Smyrna, and the Church of Philadelphia, uh, the historic people of Israel in the synagogues were ganging up against the Christian minority, perhaps informing on them and handing them over. Well, I'm sure many Christians to whom the book of Revelation was written thought the whole world was against them. The Roman pagans but also the historic people of God, the Jews. And I bet some of them were thinking, can Christ's way be true? And even if it is true, is it on track? 
Is it worth it? Well, Revelation addresses these kinds of questions, not with an intellectual argument, the sort of thing you might find in the Apostle Paul, but with engaging our imagination through the apocalyptic genre. And uh, if you're not bored of this definition yet, I haven't done my job correctly. Apocalyptic is a Jewish literary style used in anxious times to unveil vital universal truths through coded imagery. And part of the beauty of apocalyptic is that it invites us to replace the depressing images of our circumstances with a glimpse of the future as God sees it. Because in anxious times, that's what you need, a larger picture to make sense of the darkness with a little bit of light on the horizon. A picture of God's future can help you put one foot in front of the other when it seems like all is lost. Actually, uh, some of you will know psychologist Viktor Frankl's famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, which he wrote after surviving um, one of the death camps during the Holocaust. And he makes the remarkable um, observation that those who maintained hope in the death camps, whether just hope of seeing their spouse again, or in his case, hope that he would write up a psychological study of this, those who maintained hope survived in greater numbers than those who couldn't. He made the point that really human beings are such meaning-seeking beings that only when we have something to hope for, see something on the horizon, can we make sense of the present and walk through the darkness with resilience. Well, this is what we see in chapter 7, a grand picture of the future as God sees it to help us put one foot in front of the other as we walk through the mess. Chapter 7 is a pause in proceedings. And after Tom's sermon last week, which I heard online was fantastic, you may be thinking, thank the Lord for a pause. Because that was just getting scary. The vision of chapter 6, of course, uh, is the vision of a giant scroll with seven seals on it. And the scroll, of course, represents the kind of ultimate revelation that we all want to know where history is heading. What's the climax? Well, well, that's the secret inside the scroll. And by the end of the book of Revelation, the scroll really is uh, made clear and we know the final revelation that God will restore justice and restore the, the whole creation itself. But as each seal is taken off the scroll, some terrible disaster takes place. It's like as we move toward God's glorious future, there's just mess everywhere. We see war, famine, environmental catastrophe, persecution of the church, and so on. Climaxing in the words of um, uh, verse 16 of chapter 6 and 17, they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? 
Now, before the seventh seal is removed, right, which we'll get in chapter 8, and the full wrath of God poured out on the world, before that, we get a pause for a whole chapter, a little bit of relief. And the pause is designed to answer the question at the very end of chapter 6. Who can withstand it? Who can withstand it? The pause is symbolized by the stopping of the wind, chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Here we find why there's a pause, a break in proceedings, to seal the people of God, to mark them out as indeed the people who are protected. Uh, The word seal here is the same word used in chapter 6 for the seal on the scrolls, right? And it serves the same purpose. uh, An ancient seal on a scroll was designed to tell you whose authority lays behind this message, and if you dare unravel the scroll without due authority, breaking the seal inappropriately, uh, if it's an imperial scroll, you're dead. Simple as that, right? So um, it's a stamp of authority, and and it's the same with this seal on the foreheads. And we also know that in the ancient world, um, some slaves were indeed marked with a tattoo or a branding right on the forehead to indicate whose they were. Touch this slave and you'll be dealing with the emperor. And this is the idea here because the word um, servants there in verse 3, the servants of our God are sealed, is actually the word douloi, slaves. It's the slave word. They are owned by God. They are protected by Him. Touch them and you'll have the Almighty to deal with. That's the idea here. So in between the sixth and the seventh seals of the scroll, the people of God are sealed, protected. And then we're introduced to two distinct groups of sealed or protected persons, the 144,000 and the innumerable multitude. We'll take them in turn. The 144,000, verse Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. And on it goes. Now, by now, you know not to read these numbers literally. Hmm? It's apocalyptic literature. Numbers have uh, symbolic meaning. We see lots of numbers so far. And 12 is the number of God's people. Especially associated with the Old Testament people, the people of Israel, because Israelites were made up of 12 tribes from 12 patriarchs who are themselves the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everyone knew this. And here is a giant number for the ancient world, 12,000 from every tribe, 
12,000 times 12, I'm pretty sure, equals 144,000. This part of the vision reassures readers that the full number of Israelites will be saved. You think about it like the first readers. With the synagogues ganging up against them, it really must have felt like God's plan for Israel had failed. That it's not working. But here we're assured everything is on track. The full number of Israelites will be saved. But there's more going on than that. Everyone who knew their Bibles, which is everyone who first received the book of Revelation, also knew that God chose Abraham and his descendants for a purpose. Do you remember the purpose? To be the vehicle of God's blessing to all nations. God chose one nation as a conduit of blessing to all nations, which is why we had Genesis chapter 12 read today, because it's the first promise to an Israelite. And as the first promise to an Israelite, to Abraham, the father of them all, we find God's plan that is the plan that unfolds through the whole Bible, that God has chosen one nation in order to bless all nations. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here it is. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's this idea of Israel being chosen to be a vehicle of God's blessing to all nations that lies behind the second group of protected persons. The innumerable multitude, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, not 144,000, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so here we pivot from Israel to the nations. It's exactly the fulfillment of the first promise to Abraham. The idea, of course, is that Jesus, as the true Israelite, died on a cross for Israel and the world and appointed 12 Israelites, whom we call the apostles, to go and take this message to every nation, tribe, people, language. Through the gospel... Not only Israel, but the nations can know salvation, which is why they cry out in verse 10, salvation belongs to our God, not just the God of Israel, the God of all nations. That truth, friends, is the climactic truth of the whole Bible. God is not a tribal God. He's the God of all creation, the God of all nations, who chose one people to bless all people. And so as the climactic truth 
it's no wonder that the very next response is worship. No sooner have we heard that all nations are saying salvation to our God, than we hear everyone and everything falls on its face. Verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. We've heard about lots of angels so far in the book of Revelation. The four holding back the winds, the one telling them to hold back the winds, the seven angels of the churches, and on and on and on. We've heard about the elders. They're the 24 elders who represent the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. The four creatures, we know that that represents all of creation, all four corners of the earth. And here's the point. Everything falls down before God at the news of his salvation for all the world. What other response could there be? to the one who gave himself for us, than to give ourselves back to him in worship. Then one of the elders drives the point home in a question to John, right in the middle of the vision. So he's getting this amazing vision and one of the elders steps forward and says, John, I have a question for you. Verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? I answered, sir, you know, which is always the correct answer. (laughs) Don't guess, just say, you know, you tell me. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The protected persons get white robes. Remember, white is a symbol of victory throughout the book of Revelation. And they get white robes through the blood of the Lamb. Now, hang on. I know you're used to this, but you've got to pause and see how weird and inverted this is. White through blood. Victory through a Lamb. It is deliberately upending the values of the Roman world, which are all about, you know, victory through conquering. I listened to a fascinating BBC podcast uh, this week. I don't know if you know the podcast um, In Our Time, where Melvin Bragg uh, interviews leading scholars for an hour on a topic, and it is one of my favourite podcasts. Anyway, this week I listened to the one on Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, which was the great atheist's powerful critique of Christian ethics. And these three uh, professors were were talking about uh, Nietzsche's insight, and basically it goes like this. Um, The noble classical ethic, that is the ethic of Greece and Rome, Nietzsche said, followed nature's preference to elevate the strong and discard the weak and useless. And Nietzsche said, that is the life force at the center of the universe. And Christian morality came along, Nietzsche said, and ruined everything. 
and proclaimed its stupid, life-denying message that God was crucified, that the slave was exalted, that power was to be expressed through self-sacrifice, and that ruined the classical world, upending everything. Don't you love it when an atheist reminds you of what is remarkable about the Christian faith? He is dead right. (laughs) He is dead right. Or we could put it in the language of the book of Revelation, blood makes you white. Victory for eternity comes through a lamb slain. And then John is shown a glimpse of that final victory through the blood of the Lamb in the final lines of chapter 7, verse 15. Therefore, okay, let's just soak that up. They get white robes through the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Hang on. Do you see the irony there? (laughs) The lamb will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the very next paragraph, the first paragraph of chapter 8, the seventh seal is undone, which unleashes the final judgment of God. Just glance there quickly. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, just to build up the tension. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all God's people, on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God, from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. The full wrath of God poured on the evil and injustice of the world. But the point here in chapter 7 is the pause. Who can withstand this judgment? Only those who depend on the blood of the Lamb. They'll be victorious. They are sealed as God's property forever. They have their sins forgiven. A mark on their forehead... And they will enjoy unending bliss, tears removed. With countless multitudes from every nation, tribe, language and people. 
That's the vision. And friends, if that's true, you can put one foot in front of the other through the darkness because you can see light on the horizon. I've told you before, haven't I, about Martin Seligman, who's the father of positive psychology. He has a more recent uh, book called Homo Prospectus, um, in which he makes the full-blown academic case from psychology, philosophy and sociology, that, that one of the central realities of the human being is the ability to imagine a future and let that inform the present so that with resilience you can walk through anything if you have this capability of thinking of the future and planning for it, that enables us to live through the mess. In some ways, it's the full academic validation of Viktor Frankl's insight that those with hope can work toward a goal and suffer anything. It's a kind of secular way of saying what the New Testament says, what the book of Revelation especially says, that hope in the future inspires resilience in hardship and action toward a goal. We don't need positive psychology to tell, the, tell us this. Our Bible, from beginning to end, says God has a plan and it's happening and you can endure anything if you keep your eye on what God is doing, the way He is bringing all creation toward redemption. John and his original recipients were a tiny minority oppressed by Israelites, oppressed by the Roman authorities, and they are asked to glimpse God's future of all nations included in the gospel, of all creation redeemed. Imagine what it was like to read this vision back then, when it felt like no one was coming to faith, when it felt like everyone was against us. But they believed it, and they put one foot in front of the other and marched through the worst kind of suffering. Most of them never to see what we see as we look back on 2,000 years of history. That in fact, people from all nations and languages have bowed the knee to the Lamb of God. They were asked to endure when they couldn't see anything but this vision. And sure, we don't see the whole vision unfold before us yet, but man, oh man, we see a lot. We see that the gospel has upended the world. It did conquer the greatest empire that ever existed through a message of a lamb sacrificed for the sins of the world. Surely we can do what these believers did. Despite the apparent decline of the Australian church, despite the occasional art installation that mocks us, we can see God's plan to redeem the nations and restore the universe 
And because we can see that plan, we work toward it. We suffer for it. Come what may. Lord, will you enable us in our relative comfort and ease nonetheless to take up this white robe of sins forgiven, of the path of humility and suffering and follow our shepherd, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, come what may. Amen.